This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Podcast episode 279 on this special Tuesday episode. I've got a bit of a twist from our normal programming. A few weeks ago, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey announced that they would, in his words, grow down. It's no surprise to brewers across the country and around the world who are facing this you know, current economic climate of rapidly increasing ingredient logistics costs, soft sales through the vital summer months, rising rents, and more. All these things are compounding into significant and challenging headwinds for brewers. Poor Lost Abbey, like many brewers of their generation, planned for growth, took on adjacent space when it became available. Uh, you know, But growth for many brewers, whether they're craft or macro, for that matter, has been hard to find over the past couple of years as the post-pandemic bounce that we were all hoping for never never really materialized. I reached out to talk to Tommy about some of these issues facing the brewery, how they're handling them for a Q&A in our latest issue of the Industry Focus Bring Industry Guide magazine. That issue is out now. Uh, our office copies arrived last week. They're arriving to subscribers right now. And so I figured this is a great time to bring this conversation out. So here we are. Here we've got the audio from that conversation. I'm going to share that with you in a second. But first, AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results and continuously improve the process of fermentation. AccuBrew is more than a progress bar and early warning system. It's an ever-evolving piece of technology tailored to you and your process. Save time and turn tanks faster, monitor and compare batch progress in real time, enter notes, set customer reminders and temperature alerts, and detect process issues before a batch is ruined. Quality, consistency, and confidence, that's what AccuBrew delivers. Visit AccuBrew.io today for a no-obligation 90-day trial. This episode is also sponsored by BSG Distributors of TNS Hop Oils, a revolutionary hop product that gives your beer all the hop intensity with none of the astringency. Make better beer, get more from each turn with less work. Change your brewing game with TNS Hop Oils. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And... Balancing Barley and Hops is your expertise. Food-grade lubricants is theirs. Clarion food-grade lubricants meet stringent standards of purity and performance for food and beverage processing, food packaging, cosmetic, and pharmaceutical applications. All Clarion lubricants are backed by the Clarion warranty, and they work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your operation. To learn more, visit clarionlubricants.com slash foodgrade, clarionlubricants.com the expert that experts trust. And now my conversation with Tommy Arthur of Port and Lost Abbey. Maybe we should start with the first question. You know, you recently announced that Lost Abbey Port Hop Concept are growing down. What do you mean by growing down? And what is that? How, how do you define growing down? So I really wanted to kind of give a reference point to what we were trying to accomplish. And I thought that, you know, there's a lot of people that come out and say they're right-sizing, they're corrective actions, they're doing things, they're downsizing. But growing down for us was, was, an, was an approach that basically was, yeah, we understand that there could be growth in the future, but we need to get smaller today 
and we need to be comfortable being smaller for an infinite amount of time. So being down or being under where we are needs to be our mantra. And then if growth comes to us because we find the right spark or the pieces that the connective tissues that we need, then we can grow through that. So the growing part's important. You're growing down or you're going down, but you're still maintaining a focus on what does it mean to grow in the future and how can we go about that? But getting to the getting to the right size, you know, getting to the to the baseline and then working backwards from that, you know, to try to find growth in the future. It's definitely a different way of defining it. It's not a giving up. It's a understanding that the scale of the business in the current environment needs to be different to be competitive, to be profitable and to be sustainable. Yeah. I thought about this a lot. You know, there's a lot of different ways to talk about retreating, retrenching, you know, and those words are all, they're very associative. And so I wanted to kind of frame it uniquely to, you know, what I see as being something that that a lot of people in the industry have had to go through or will be going through. Um, But I wanted to kind of coin something that we could latch onto as a company and be like, we're doing this for us. But at the same time, you know, it's we're not using just a standardized naming convention for something that a lot of people will be doing, which is essentially just getting smaller. But there's a reason for what we're doing. What are what are some of the broader market dynamics that have like driven this most recent move. Uh, Clearly, we went through a pandemic. People were seemingly buying lots of beer out in grocery stores. That trend has not continued in that. We expected a rebound in the industry. Um, You know, at the same time, there's a lot of competition. You all built a brewery with certain kinds of goals in mind in a different environment, you know, eight, 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, what are some of the things you're looking at now that are driving some of the decision making behind this? So I think the biggest one is, is that we kind of have to start with the history. This company is going to be 17 years old in the, when we get into the new year. So that that t- sort of gives some context as to where we came from, where we grew, where we grew up from um, and kind of where we're at in, in our history. Um, you know, a 17 year old brewery is old by by many standards at this point, even though it's really not as a business. Um, but when we started, there was growth. Growth was everywhere, right? When we opened our doors in 2006, um, you know, if you were making good, good beer, good liquid, you could find growth very easily, whether it was through territorial expansion, um, you know, even backyard, you know, you could, you could get to 10,000 barrels quickly. And, you know, I think we, I think we reached, you know, double digit barrels and in probably our fifth or sixth year on, on what amounted to be a pretty slow growth pattern for us. Uh, so, you know, we we constantly approached every year, like like a many breweries and businesses where growing was the was the success, you know, that we're up 30 percent, 10 percent, 14 percent, whatever it is in, in our world. Growth is what you were you were benchmarking your success against. Um, we made a lot of decisions in that in those in those last 10 years to invest in the company. And by investing in the company, we didn't take dividends. We put all the money in stainless steel. We own every tank in the building. You know, everything essentially is paid for, but now it's worth, you know, pennies on the dollar. So was that the right strategy? You know, should we have invested all of that or should we have gone to more, you know, less of a lifestyle, you know, where we were quality of life and we didn't have three shifts, you know, would, would it made more sense to be, you know, operationally, you know, much, much leaner with regards to all of our assets, but using them at a, at a much higher rate. Uh, we've learned a lot over the years. And I think that what, what it really comes down to is that there isn't one singular way to run a brewery and especially one with some of the complexities that we have with the different um, brands and a hugely sour, non-sour operation with the Abbey beers and the wood program and things like that. 
I remember last time I was out there, you uh, you had this beautiful bottling line that you'd invested a huge amount of money in, and then a small canning line next to it yeah. that was now taking over the lion's share of the production. You know, and that was just another example of the kinds of investments you'd made in quality that now the market isn't that interested in, despite your ability to produce of that kind of quality. Uh, how much of this do you think is driven by this rapid change we've seen over the last four or five years in, in consumer behavior, everything from you know this excitement and then seeming like additional competition and now lower volumes within you know sour and acid forward beer you know combined with you know differing strange trends within the APA, uh, IPA world all these other pieces the way that people wanted in packaging you know how much is driven by you know the difficulty in having the right equipment and the right focus you know to meet where the market continues to shift while at the same time you have to be cognizant of where the market may now be in 5 years from now which could very well be different than where it is now yeah, I'll tell you this, and this isn't this hasn't been put out to the to the to the ether yet. But um, in two weeks' time, there will be a crew coming to start disassembling the bottling line because um, we put it up for sale and we sold it to a brewery in Florida because we don't run it. Um, I think it runs once a month right now. Um, our last payment on that bottling line will be due in January, so it will be paid off by the time um, basically that it ships out of here. So it's crazy to think that we just spent you know over five years paying for an asset brand new. It's a Maserati. It's a beautiful machine. Uh, it just takes up a lot of room. It doesn't run as frequently as it could, should, or otherwise. And it's going to find a new home because as you mentioned, the canning line um, runs three days a week, you know, maybe four, and it spits out a lot more beer and it's time for the canning line to, um, you know, be be front and center. But that, that bottling line exists because we had a lot of square footage. You know, it's a packaging haul. It takes a, a pretty good amount of space to, to have a, it's a 20 valve machine, um, and it takes a lot of space. So by getting rid of the bottling line, that was the very first step in this process that we're on, um, was to get out from under having excess square footage that we were paying for that wasn't generating revenue. Um, and that's a big part of our growing down strategy is to shed the excess uh, excess square footage that's very, very expensive in California. Sure, sure. How much does the, the product mix weigh into this? You know, <clears throat> certainly what people are interested in you know, we, we've even watched certain styles in the last five years peak and then, um, you know, maybe even potentially start to, uh, you know, to either you know, stay static or decline. Things like hazy IPA, which were once growing so quickly, things like, you know, kettle quick sours, even things like pastry stouts all seem to have popped up and now, um, you know, maybe not showing the same kind of growth numbers that they once did. Hard seltzer, you know, came out of nowhere, grew really fast and now seems to to be on a plateau or decline, um, you know, how much does this kind of rapidly changing consumer behavior and interest, you know, impact how you operate the business? It's a great question because it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty diverse model. So if I go back and I think this is a great way to approach this. So, um, you know, we will be, you know, when we turn that into the new year, the, the, um, we bought the bottling line in, in November of 2015, so we've had it for seven years now. And seven years ago, when we launched that machine, we basically brought Hop Concept online. So we had this Hop Forward brand, 22-ounce bottles only. There were no cans of it, um, draft beer, things like that. But in seven years' time, that 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 format has gone from 22-ounce to, to can. And in reality, it shifted to can four years ago. So we really only got 
three years of that brand under that platform of, of glass bottles. So shifted dynamically very, very quickly. But the consumerism is interesting because the consumer doesn't seem to have a lot of um, love or, or need for glass containers at this point. Um, you want acid beer, you can get quick sours, you can get other sours in in cans. You want pastry stouts, I'll buy that in a can. The glass bottle doesn't seem to really resonate as a vessel anymore at a consumer level. It doesn't matter what kind of beer necessarily. It doesn't even take into account seltzers and, and kombuchas and all that. It's just on a beer level. There really isn't much that is in glass and it's become very interesting um, you start to think about people wanting to sell their beers and stuff. And, you know, are, are you know, cellared cans of pastry stout 10 years from now, um, you know, is that going to be, a, you know, is that going to be an acceptable thing or not? And I, I truly don't know, um, you know, where the market's going. I don't. But right now, aluminum is king. We know that much. When, you, when we look at the, the broader picture, there are, you know, so many financial challenges facing breweries today, you know, rising logistics costs that makes distribution much, much more expensive which even makes things like wide and shallow distribution harder to be, you know, to make financially work. Um, there was a time, you know, in the 2000s and early 20-teens where you could find distributors that might want to sell a niche product like sour beer in small, shallow ways across major metropolitan markets and might take and be able to distribute that. You know, certainly now with the cost of shipping across country, you need to be doing volumes and you need to be very cost effective about the way that that distribution happens to even make it work. Um, how does that figure into to what you all do, especially potentially on the lost Abbey side? Yeah. So you asked about distribution and, and I guess one of the more interesting things, and, and, and this is kind of, you know, shifts the gears to what's unique about our situation or what makes this, you know, you know what has made the been challenges for our, us. So I can explain to you that in, in many, many ways, you know, it, it boils down to a couple of things. Um, one, on a distribution level, we used to ship beer um, at a much higher volume to the East Coast, and we would have half truckloads and, you know, consolidated truckloads going to our distributors. And that doesn't exist anymore in our footprint. Most of our stuff heading to the East Coast is anywhere from four to six pallet positions. And so now we're on an LTL level, um, less than truckload, and that's expensive. And it's not it's not as easy to make dollars and cents out of that. So that's number one. Number two, we've seen a much different distributor uh, consolidation sort of footprint. Um, and even within the same distributor footprint, the way that they approached brands, um, brought brands in, um, kind of pushed brands to the bottom. You know, there is not much uh, there is not much love for selling hand hand to table kinds of stuff right now. You know, it's you want to you want to have the trucks go in and drop stacks of things and walking in with a case of belgian beer is not not an ideal situation so even the specialty beer teams that used to exist at the distributor level have been consolidated or or you know kind of dropped out um so that's been a part of it a secondary you know concern for us has been that even in certain cities where we used to have very craft house focused kinds of uh, uh partners those those distributors were sold to larger uh, entities. And then at that point, some of the, the broader market conditions kicked in, you know, more more units, less stops, et cetera. Um, so that's been problematic. And then specifically to our, uh, our one of our largest challenges here um, in the past few years, and this is something that kind of flies under a lot of radars, is that we're on a commercial lease and triple net leases, or triple net leases are very 
uh, landlord favorable and very not favorable to the tenant. So we're responsible for a lot of the upkeep. Well, within the last six years, this building flipped. Uh, it was sold. And then when it was sold, it hadn't been sold for many, many years. And then they readjusted our property taxes. And so now we're on the hook for more building than we had five years ago at a higher tax rate at a time when things are declining. So that's been part of our our internal, you know, sort of look at it is, yeah, it, it made sense to be at a 40,000 square foot clip, but we can't afford 40,000 square feet anymore. So that's where, um, you know, these things are kind of, they're so behind the scenes and you don't, they don't really show up until they show up. And then all of a sudden when they do, they're, they're pretty massive. How much has the, some of the uh, rising raw materials costs impacted you all? I mean, it's, it's so crazy because I, I said this the other day to some people and I, I think, I, I think it's true with the exception of basically hops that were that we've been contracted for over a broad broader period um, they're basically the only thing that really hasn't risen out of scale so we might have a 10 cent increase year over year on a varietal but that's predictable and it hasn't changed um, our barley prices are our, our two row silo malt went up 60 percent last year um, we've seen multiple multiple hits on the cardboard corrugated level um, we just got a letter in the mail six weeks ago that Cost of CO2 was going up 20%. And then you take into account labor, labor shortages, labor retention. Um, there hasn't been a single place in our building, um, ostensibly outside of our hop contract, that really hasn't gone past a very defendable, um, you know, defendable level of, of uh, inflationary pressure or whatever you want to call it. And it's absorbable. And I think that's kind of what we've what we've really learned over the last six, eight, 10 months is that the amount of things that we're being asked to absorb is impossible. And I think that that's where this this whole this whole premise comes from is just that you you get out of bed every day and you think you can find ways to absorb them. And then at some point they're 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 untenable. And that's where that's kind of where we're living. Have you done any modeling of trying to solve the problem from the revenue side? Uh, you know, in terms of price increases or finding ways to offset some of all of these other increasing costs? So I used to talk to my financial director a lot about this, and there was always this sense that we we always said, you know, sales will fix everything, right? And, and that used to be a, a thing. If you had the right mix and you had the right margin and you grew sales, then you would have inevitably more profit available or more dollars available to you to just to dispense of them as need be. The problem is, is that sales are expensive. And if you aren't paying attention to what you're selling or you're selling the wrong marginalized thing, then you don't have money available to you because it's the cost of the sale. You know, the, the product itself isn't, isn't going to generate any revenue. So we've gotten away from a top line, you know, growing sales will fix everything to a much more uh, in inline sense of, tops and bottoms and the bottom is more important than ever because there isn't any money um, without really, really paying attention to the bottom line inputs or, or where it's going out. Um, so for us, it's not that it's not that we were flush flush over the years. It's just that now where are you going to allocate, where are you going to allocate the wins and, and then the losses are bigger than they've ever been. I think you're right there that uh, this rising tide raises all ships or this idea that growth alone can paper over some fundamental financial problems within the business itself has been something that's allowed a lot of breweries to get away with things that uh, are harder to get away with now. Um, you know, what are, what are some of those, you know, kind of, and, and I should say, 
when we're looking at this overall equation, you know, people are a big part of this. You know, human beings working in a brewery are expensive. They're also facing the same kind of inflationary challenges within their own lives and their own family budgets that everyone else is. Um, you know, we understand that. Uh, you know, it's it, it's very realistic for them to want to find you know, this kind of compensation. How do you then focus on the things that can allow for like efficiency, whether that's within the product mix, whether that's looking at you know automation um, ways to make sure that you you know to find ways to lower the expense of that while also not burning out staff and creating an environment that people don't want to work in it's a that's a huge heavy question so let's start and let's uh let's dissect it in a couple of ways the first thing is is that employee capital is is incredibly important and it's not something that we have uh infinite level of of spend on so we can't just burn people out for the sake of of continuing on on a, on a business there you know you have to be you have to be invested in their wellness and that's that's a very difficult thing to do um, especially coming out of a pandemic in the ways that we have. I mean, there's been there's been a lot of people who have survived something that we never, and I don't mean survived from, I didn't get sick. I mean, survived from a very level of my wellness, right? So as we're talking, it's really important for the listeners to understand that we are in California. We are currently paying almost five and a half dollars a gallon for gas which turns to grocery prices, which minimum wage is five as a minimum wage at the state level is now $15 an hour in the new year. It flips to 1550. This is a very interesting story. We didn't realize it was supposed to cap at 15 last year, but there was a trigger in the system for if inflation went above a certain percentage and it went above that certain percentage this year. So now the last minimum wage increase that we thought we were going to see should have been January one of this year, but because there's a new inflation mechanism now it's another 50 cents when we get to 23 that wasn't even in the budget for like you know at some point in 22 right we didn't we all looked at each other and said great we've survived the minimum wages at this point now we can we can understand what that looks like but every time that happens the entire hospitality team any of the you know the, any of the minimum wage pieces go up in that um that 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 translates into more and more and more um so we have we have crazy california pricing we have crazy california rules um, we love making beer in the Golden State. It's an amazing place to be, make and sell beer um, for so many reasons. And I, I, you know, we don't want to get away from that. But it's a very different reality than a brewery in a in a state in the middle of the country or otherwise. So it's it's um, something that um, we have to at least explain as part of our our DNA and our daily business um, that they don't look the same. You know, and our and of course, you know, rents in California are off the charts, and and most places commercial rents and even personal rents are way up. Um, but all of that looks very different. To answer your question, every single thing that we kind of have to pay on is, is, is has been problematic. But there was a point last year um, in the fall, sometime around August, um, where the entire operation here had to get paid more because it started to kick in that it just wasn't enough. And my, my financial director said to me, how are we going to afford to pay these people more money than we're currently paying? And I said, if we don't pay them, we won't have anything to sell. Um, and that's 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 like business 101, right? If you don't pay them more, will you be able to make more or not even more, make make the product you need to like horse cart, you know, tail, et cetera. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a crazy situation. But ultimately, if you don't have people, you can't make product. 
how then do you think about what, what you make and how you make it in order to optimize around that? You know, that uh, are you all pulling more process and work or person intensive beers and, you know, uh, you know, product approaches out of the mix? Are you rebalancing so that while you continue some of those more hands-on things, they're just happening at a smaller level at a higher price point? You know, how, how do you adjust for that in order to, you know, again, try to, to not, not to just extract the most labor out of people, but also make sure that they are producing in the most efficient kind of way so that you can afford this new reality that you're facing. Yeah. I think we saw a lot of that kind of some of the burnout. I mean, we lost, I don't know, we lost five employees and, you know, we're, we're, we're a team of 15 at some point. And I think we lost five of them last summer. Some left for other positions and the great, the part of the great resignation and people left on their own terms and things like that. Um, I don't believe that we, that we overworked people to the point where that was it, but it was maybe a function of not compensating at a level that they, they had opportunities to go, you know, go change and, and adjust for, um, you know, for, for us, I'm, I'm most worried about our sour beer program more than anything, more than anything else in terms of what we make, um, because the cost to justify the space, uh, isn't that simple anymore. And, you know, we used to sell a significant portion of our beer was aged and sour, and those were at a higher, at a higher price point, higher margin. And, that all translated into, you know, more opportunity, more building space, more, um, more free cash, everything you need to run a business. And, you know, that, that almost is kind of like, you know, water in the West these days, it's kind of lakes are drying up and, you know, that that's a reservoir. And we're starting to see a lot of breweries who heavily invested in sour beer, uh, you know, mixed culture, sour beer fermentation, not quick, you know, no quick kettle stuff, um, really having to reevaluate, you know, how much land, how much landscape and you know and 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 position you're you're willing to commit to something that doesn't have a really high level of consumerism you know there there aren't people banging on our door saying when's your next sour beer release coming out you know and that's a challenge not not i mean obviously there are some expenses with sour beer that you know like you're you're not paying for yeast amongst other things sure. generally speaking but you know at the same time the real estate where you are the ability to stack barrels a certain amount of height because you're uh, you know, you have to be aware of earthquake, uh, you know, yep, danger. You know, there's all all sorts of other challenges that, that come around that. What, what, what do you, you know, expect to see then over the next three or four years, you know, in terms of product mix? Is that going to be a shift to some of those beers with shorter production times that you can find more profit in, especially on that hoppy side? Is that, uh, you know, which also, uh, you know, could potentially meet what consumers want from you. Um, you know, how do you then start to think about what this brewery and its mix means to the customers that you have and the customers that you want to find you? I think the biggest challenge that we're under right now is, is that, you know, we're, we're about an 8,000 barrel a year brewery. Um, and we're known most of the volume of beer that leaves this building is in a, in a very hoppy land. So the, you know, the port brewing Mongo is our best selling beer. Um, you know, it's 30 plus percent of our total sales and we have the hop concept brands, which are all IPA forward focused, et cetera. Um, you know, lost Abbey as a brewery brand is only about 15, 15 to 1800 barrels of beer a year. 
Um, that's a really small operation by 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 many many standards. Um, so for us, how can we be how can we be an eight thousand barrel a year brewery with a sour and a non sour component? And just one of the challenges that kind of comes into play is that you mentioned earlier that we had a glass bottling line, we had a small canning line, we have a glass sour bottling line, we have a canning sour canning line. So even under under my one roof line, I've got four different packaging lines. Um, in order to do some of the product mix that we do, seemingly, if we sharpened our, you know, sharpened our knives a little bit differently, um, we might look at it and say that's too much um, at that size. You know, maybe maybe at thirty thousand barrels it makes much more sense, um, but at eight thousand barrels it's probably too much. But that's that's our current reality. And maybe next year, I you know, I'd come back on this and we we're having a conversation and we're at four thousand barrels and we're we're way differently positioned against you know what what is possible and to be very clear, you know, what does the market want from Port Brewing? What does it want from Hop Concept? And what does it want from Lost Abbey? And that remains to be seen. But I can tell you that the Lost Abbey brand will continue to continue to want to be experimental Belgian sour, things like that. And, and even at 1,500, 1,800 barrels, we think there's plenty of room for us to do that and, and not need a, a super wide and shallow footprint. Sure. Even what many folks would consider to be the the top of the top in that sour and wild beer world of Cantillon is still only 2,500 barrels a year. Um, you know, and so if that's the production of the best of the best, uh, you know, you, I think it's a safe assumption to make that, uh, you know, 1,500 to 1,800 barrels is actually quite extensive. It's quite a significant amount of production for that style of beer um, in Southern California, yeah. especially given how many producers are making it. Not that everyone's making it at the quality that Lost Abbey is. And that's, um, that's that's really important for us. You know, we we've wanted to be a world class brewery and, and that's been on our it's been on the whiteboard since day one was, you know, we we want we want the Lost Abbey brand to be recognized for being world class, even though, you know, aspirationally we want to make sour beers and wood aged beers and unique things. And some of them don't have uh some of you know, some of what we do, you know, clearly has had peers over the years, but at the same time we just want to be us and and we can do that if we keep true to what we have you know what we what we aspire to be but it's getting to be more difficult when you start having conversations about where you're going to find those sales um not because there's there's been a, a lack of consumers there's just more people making them and therefore the slice of the pie is much smaller you are you currently have a 30 barrel brew house which was one that you all purchased from that was the original stone production brewery um what is what, what's your next production step what do you intend to replace that with in order to maintain your your eight thousand barrelish production or or whatever this next goal is as you grow down how do you see it from a production standpoint uh you know and how are you going to you know again adjust around that in order to make sure that uh, you can produce the amount of beer you need to do on a smaller a smaller system what's that system size going to be yeah. And how are you envisioning that? So when the article broke um, on November 1st, we came out and stated that the that the brewery assets were available for sale because we wanted to see if there was a way to kind of horse trade. And that would be like, hey, we want to walk away from this 30-barrel brewery that was built to do 25,000 barrels um, and can do 25,000 barrels, but we don't need that level of capacity. When we were growing up all those years from 2006 till now, um, every single time that we bought a new fermenter and bolted it to the floor, it was at a minimum of three batch tanks. So nothing less than 90 barrels 
was installed in the brewery. So we went from a 30 barrel production kit, which is fine. The 30 barrel system is not the problem. It's that the tanks in the building are, are nothing less than 30, uh, 30 times three times four times five times six. And what that, what that causes now is problems with just pure volume. We are not brewing many 150 barrel batches of beer. So every time I need to clean that tank, every time I need to purge that tank, CO2, drain it, redo it, I'm spending a lot of extra money in things that we're calling soft costs, stuff that doesn't really show up. You know, our chemical costs are higher, our CO2 usage is higher, the chillers on the roof are, you know, more expensive because they they have to run, you know, they're they're larger and they run more. So we're going to continue to operate now. We've spent the last almost almost a month um kind of having, you know, kind of kicking the tires on on the 30. The 30 is not the problem. It is the larger tanks. So we're going to turn our attention to being much smaller. At a footprint level, we're probably going to put a couple of the larger tanks up for sale and then hopefully kind of horse trade from that to smaller 60, 90 barrel kinds of things, which gives us a lot more flexibility. Um, and then the last part of it is for us is that every time we make a large batch of beer, we have to put a chunk of it into the cold box and then we're holding more inventory on a turn level than we then on a cash flow basis that you really want to do. So we then become incredibly sunk with the amount of beer we're holding that isn't sellable, you know, for at least another 30, 90 days. I think it's important for the, the consumers and the people listening out there to, to kind of be reminded that when you make a batch of beer, you know, you buy ingredients and, you know, you can't convert some of that money back into your pocket for 90 to 120 days. If I make a batch of IPA and I sell it to my distributor and they have net 30, net 45, by the time it gets to them, it might take 90 days for me to put that money back in my bank account. It's a long time. Yeah, yeah, and so making that in thirty barrel chunks, and getting paid for that, and then making the next thirty barrel chunk three weeks from then, you know, making the next thirty barrel chunk can be a, a better way to manage cash flow through that entire process. Yeah, we identified that that our three biggest needs as part of a growing down strategy was occupancy costs, labor costs, and then cost of cost of finished goods. But not, I mean, it was more about level of finished goods, not necessarily the cost. Everybody's fighting the cost of the finished goods from barley and input and, and corrugated and all that stuff shipping. But it's a matter of how much finished goods do you have on hand? How many days of inventory do you have? And you know, if you're running lean, you you know, you have 15, 20 days. And if you're running fat, you got 100 days. Well, there's a big difference in terms of money in your money in your hand um, between 20 days and 100 days. And 100 days of inventory you know, for a tech company is one thing, 100 days of inventory for a brewery where that product- It's uh, perishable. It's perishable. Yeah. It's a whole nother problem. You yeah. just can't, you can't run that kind of inventory. No, sure. and, and and we're lucky on some levels that some of the beers that we make have incredible shelf life. So that's not necessarily the problem. The problem is now found in how much money sitting in your cold box more than it should be and what does that look like and if if right now it's fifty thousand dollars a month in cash flow that fifty thousand would go a long ways to to being able to spool through in different places it's money you've spent and then it's also money that you're spending on footprint on real estate and on uh utilities yeah energy uh, utilities and all, all of those things to keep that beer cold until you can sell it and so it's a triple whammy you know in that sense uh, it, you know, it, it becomes a quadruple whammy when the when the when the distributors don't pull it and now you're destroying it and you know it's it's just one of those things where 
you have to really sharpen the pencil right now. And, the, and it's even if you sharpen the pencil, you still could have a, a you know, you could have a 10% variance and even that 10% could be worth a significant amount. At the same time, we've watched the Lost Abbey open. Uh, we've watched you all open yet another new direct-to-consumer location. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have the original tap room at the brewery. You've got another location out at what, Cardiff in the Sea. Cardiff by the Sea, yeah. Cardiff by the Sea. And you've got, you just opened uh, last year, another location um, in, you know, closer to central San Diego. How much do you see selling beer directly to consumer via your own owned retail and on-premise locations um, you know, to be one piece of raising the, you know, improving the economic picture around, um, you know, make re- uh, drive, increasing the amount of revenue you make per beer sold. Yeah. Um, so we've always been a pretty highly distributed beer company in our, in our, in our, in our heyday. Um, we were probably, you know, 85% distributed to 15% on premise back when we only had the tasting room here. Uh, in San Marcos. And um, nowadays, our distributed brands are probably 55, 60% of our sales and our hospitalities come up to about 40%. Um, so on, on a lot of levels, that seems amazing. But at the same time, the brewery was built to be efficient for distributed things. So the high-speed bottling line, the high-speed kegging line, um, you know, beer leaving the dock, on pallets, you know, you you send a thousand cases of an IPA out. You don't have to build orders and pack it and do things. It's pulling pallets and one guy on a forklift. There's a lot of efficiency in that. Now that we've become a hospitality facing company, on some levels, I mean, there's there's a possibility that distribution dollars and hospitality dollars could flip in the next year. Um, and but that doesn't come with the same margins necessarily, even though you have your own premise margins and you're getting full retail, you have to remember that each one of those comes with a commercial lease, triple net, like we talked about, rising utility costs, rising hospitality, um, you know, uh, minimum wage. Um, so I used to, to be very cautious and I and I, I think maybe on some levels we, we nearly failed ourselves here. And that is, is that opening additional tasting rooms will not fix your business model. It's just, it's just the possibility of, of cheaper money because it creates cash flow daily, right? You're now in a situation where I get I get to open and I can do a thousand dollars in sales, and that money goes right into my bank account. Um, but it comes with you have you have higher costs of, of of wages relative to hospitality service. You have higher occupancy costs because you're paying for more buildings and the insurance and all those things. So opening an extra satellite tasting room will not fix business model. In fact, I've seen a number of small breweries look to a secondary tasting room and it basically put them out of business um, because it didn't hit their, you know, they didn't meet their projections. Um, So it's not, it's not a pure solution. The additional thing that comes with, with new locations is in, 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 on top of all of those expenses is complexity and management. And, you know, that complexity and management also directly impacts your own quality of life and the quality of life of the executive leadership of the business that are then having to shepherd this additional group of staff and 
you know, potentially be present and on site, um, spend more time on the road, be more, be in more places all the time. Um, you know, from a executive leadership standpoint, how do you, again, make decisions around some of those things that you are going to undertake versus the things that you're not? I think that's something that a lot of younger brewery owners and operators certainly don't consider as they look at opportunities around this. The overhead in terms of personal time and uh, your own quality of life is pretty significant with some of those. So the church that you referenced, which was the most recent project we opened a year ago, is the furthest from home. It's 35 miles from the brewery. Um, it is in downtown San Diego. It's a long ways from San Marcos. Um, so reaching that location is not the easiest thing. The other satellite location, um, Cardiff by the Sea, we have another satellite here in San Marcos. They're seven to 11 miles away. They're much, much closer, um, not as bad, and, and they're, they're just much easier to reach. Um, you know, I think that there's a fallacy, and that is, is that that you can find the people to do it. But you got to remember, it's it's almost like training a sales staff, right? You have these people who are forward facing; they are the the the, the face of the ambassadors of the company. You've got to have the right people. Every time you take a great manager and you move them from one location to the next, you have to backfill. Um, you know, there's an e- enormous amount of emotional capital that goes into that. And then typically, when when you do this kind of stuff. You're not really adding a lot of uh, back of the house at the brewery level assistance, right? You're just saying, okay, we'll reconcile more, more paperwork, more cash, more deliveries, more this, more that. So you're bifurcating a lot of duties and you know a lot of a lot of um, a lot of energy, and you know you're you're assigning it to another space um, again with the goal of potentially making more profit, and then that profit can be distributed. But not all not all operations, you know. These days, specifically, not all hospitality operations are, are are highly highly profitable. Is there anything that you employ to try to streamline that? You know, as 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 every business is want to do. You know, we think that we're great communicators, and we're not. Um, you know, we've we've gone to meetings. We never used to have monthly meetings for the hospitality side, but now with four locations, um, we kind of need that sort of that conjoined. You know, everybody come here, let's talk about it. It's really difficult. Um, you know, our hospitality program probably is about 20 to 25 employees total now, which is about half of our staff. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of opportunity to bring everybody together. So what we're reliant on is a lot of site visits and stuff, but um, that's still not the easiest way to build community. So yeah. for us, it's it's really, you know, it's really finding great managers and, and you know, empowering them um, with the amount of information that they need and then hoping that the logistical system that we employ to get the messaging and the delivery, you know, the deliverables and things to them is great. Um, but of course, every business can do better. Look at, looking at all of the things that are now working against you, are you still happy to be doing what you're doing? And where do you find the joy and reward in this, Tommy? It's a good one because it's uh, on a daily basis. There's a lot of frustration, of course, of late. Um, You know, we're still here. I think that's a really big, important part of the message is that we're still doing what we want to do. I was really lucky to be in Chicago last week um, for the Festival of Barrel Age Beer, the 20th anniversary of that. Um, You know, we got to we got to to succeed at a competitive level. Our Duck Duck Views won a gold medal for Barrel Age Sour Beers then went on to win best of show. Um, you know, that's why we do this. That's, that's the win. Um, 
So that was really bittersweet. You know, I wasn't able to share it with a bunch of my team members and otherwise because we couldn't fly a bunch of people out. Um, but if you want to remind people of what we do and that we're you know a world class brewery, it helps to have those moments and those moments, um, as long as they keep coming along because of the work we're putting in, the reward is there. Um, you know, I've been doing this 26 years now and it's still um, I still have a lot of opportunity to take take pride in, in the stuff that we're doing because it matters. But at the same time, the the internal part of running a business is very grinding. And for the last, you know, 16, 18 months, it's been, um, you know, almost, almost that sense of like we survived COVID and then it got even worse, you know, so it was wild to think that, uh, you know, that that wasn't the hardest part of this. So um, there's still some pretty dark days ahead, I think with regard to a lot of breweries, including ourselves, but um, I think we're executing a plan. And I think that that's where we came out in that article and said, Growing down is a plan, and if you can grow down successfully, um, and you can do this, you know, openly, I think it's more important to be open about it than to be to be closed off. There are a lot of small breweries who, you know, their experience having launched in the last five years or so, um, they've only participated in the world of craft beer, and they've only operated as as businesses in craft beer through a generally up economy. With 26 years under your belt, you've seen ups and downs significantly through the craft beer industry over that kind of time. Um, Craft beer in the 90s was not all up. There was a boom and then it was a bust and there was a rebuilding period. And there, you know, then there was a, you know, a 2008 recession uh, that, uh, you know, completely shredded the economy and um, and a long recovery from that, which you know, fueled this next boom that started in the early 20 teens. You know, from an operational standpoint, as somebody who has gone through these cycles, um, what do you think are some of the most important things that those operating breweries now should be paying attention to? Uh, that's a heavy one. Um, you know, when I when I first started this 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 journey, I you know just making beer was enough, and and making beer is an amazing thing. Um, there's a lot of breweries I think that fall under the same umbrella that that I'm I've been under, and that is, is I've never run a company. This is the first time I'd ever been in charge of a business. Uh, doesn't mean that I hadn't seen what it meant, you know what what it means to operate a business or how to go about that. But that doesn't mean that I'm a great operator. And I don't consider myself to be a great operator necessarily. I, I consider myself to be a great brewer and someone who understands what they want to accomplish, you know, with flavors. But the harder part of today is that the success of the company is is driven by leadership. It's driven by, you know, as, as you've seen as a magazine editor, you know, point blank, that the quality of the beer is not the most important thing. Like I can tell you straight out, that's... And I don't have to call anybody out for what it is. There's just a lot of bad beer that's succeeding. Um, and that's okay for them. But at some point, that won't be okay. And everybody, I think if there's a takeaway message, I think that everybody learns within their within their timeline that somewhere in the, in the space of, you know, start up to wherever you're at, that ultimately uh, you have to find your future. And I think you've referenced that earlier in terms of what's next and kind of that stuff like, What does our future look like? Our future looks like a company that's not going to rely on growth to be successful. We're going to, I don't want to use the word retrench, but we're going to, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get back to being small 
and then from there we will we will strategically take our shots at at what amounts to be growth or not and in that sphere use our our knowledge of the past to be successful in the future and that i think is a great place to bring this to a close many thanks to tommy for sharing his thoughts as they navigate the challenging waters ahead. AccuBrew is an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information brewers need to produce consistent results. TNS Hop Oils from BSG are a revolutionary hop product that gives your beer all the intensity with none of the astringency and let Clarion Lubricants work with you to create a lubrication program that protects your operations. Of course, holiday time is here. Subscriptions to craft beer and brewing are great gifts for those fellow brewers in your life. And while you're at it, you might as well treat yourself Go to beerandbring.com, click on that subscribe button, give a gift to someone who matters, whether that's a friend or whether that's yourself, and help us make a difference in the brewing world. Uh, We do deeply appreciate your support, uh, especially this time of year. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back Friday with a new episode. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.